Hey, Revolution Health Radio listeners. I have some exciting news to share with you. This coming July, I'll be launching my own supplement line called Adapt Naturals. It's the product of my 15 years of research, clinical experience treating patients, and training over 2,000 healthcare professionals around the world. If you're listening to this show, you're interested in optimal health. You want to know how to feel your best, perform at the highest level, prevent and reverse disease, and extend your health span. Sadly, that's getting harder and harder in a modern world that seems completely at odds with these goals. This is why I've created a supplement stack called Core Plus to fill the most common gaps I see in people's daily routines and to support you in living your best life. I'll be sharing more information soon about the Adapt Naturals Core Plus bundle and how it can help you achieve your health goals and thrive in the post-COVID world. I'll keep you posted here on the podcast And you can also join my email list at chriscresser.com for the latest updates. I can't wait to tell you more, so stay tuned. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. About 10 years ago when I created the High Cholesterol Action Plan, which is a digital education program for people with lipid abnormalities, I came across in my research substances called tocotrienols. And they're actually a form of vitamin E, but not the most common form that you've probably heard of. If, if you have a multivitamin or a supplement that has vitamin E in it, chances are it's, it's a tocopherol, alpha-tocopherol specifically. And it turns out that tocopherols, even though they're the best known form of vitamin E, have some downsides. Studies have shown over the years that supplementing with alpha-tocopherol may increase the risk of cancer and heart disease and cause other problems. Whereas tocotrienols, which are uh, not as well known and were only actually discovered in the 1960s and and clearly distinguished from tocopherols in uh, the early 2000s, so just 20 years ago, are far more beneficial uh, as a family of dietary compounds and have shown pretty remarkable impacts in terms of reduction in cardiovascular risk factors, Uh, metabolic risk factors like glucose and insulin, inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein and interleukin-6, and uh, a wide range of cancer prevention benefits and and potentially even cancer treatment. So it's an exciting family of compounds. And I, as I said, I stumbled across them uh, about a decade ago when I was researching how to uh, natural approaches for lowering LDL particle number. Uh, and thus reducing cardiovascular disease risk. And I found that delta and gamma tocotrienols were one of the few natural substances that were known to do that. So I've been aware of these compounds for um, many years and using them in my clinical practice. But I realized uh, recently that I'd never done a podcast on tocotrienols. And I don't believe that I've ever written a full blog article on them either. So this is my attempt to remedy that. And in order to do that, I asked one of the uh, foremost experts on tocotrienols in the world to join me on the show, Dr. Barry Tan. Dr. Tan actually discovered the uh, tocotrienol content in Anato. He was in South America. We, we talk about this in the show and uh, was you know just a pioneer in this field. He earned his PhD in chemistry and biochemistry from the University of Otago, New Zealand, and then spent several years as a professor at University of Massachusetts. 
and his, his work is focused on lipid soluble nutrients that impact chronic conditions. And he was the first to introduce the benefits of tocotrienols to the nutrition industry. And he was the first to develop a tocopherol free tocotrienol product that was derived from anato, which he discovered. He didn't discover anato, of course, but he discovered that anato was a, a source of exclusively of delta and gamma tocotrienol. So I was really excited to have the chance to talk with Dr. Tan, since I've known of his work for many years, and to hear his fascinating story of the discovery of tocotrienols in anato, and then all of the amazing research that he has done since then and is still doing on the benefits of tocotrienols on everything from you know osteoporosis and bone health to metabolic conditions to uh, reduction of the risk of cancer. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Let's dive in. Dr. Tan, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Love to be doing this and I'm glad to be at your show. So uh, I want to just dive right in and talk about a little bit of history here. So uh, a lot of listeners will be aware that vitamin E is an antioxidant and they may have heard, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s even and and, and to this day in some circles there's been, you know, a big a recommendation to supplement with vitamin E to improve your antioxidant status, but several years ago there were some disturbing studies about the long-term effects of supplementing with vitamin E and we're of course going to get more clear about what we're actually talking about when we say vitamin E. Um, but there were some disturbing studies that showed that, that long-term supplementation with higher doses of vitamin E could actually increase the risk of cancer and heart disease and cause other problems. And I think a lot of people got turned off uh, to mm. the, the concept of vitamin E supplementation. I myself wrote about these studies you know, many years ago and was concerned about the, the impact of long-term supplementation uh, with vitamin E. And then I, uh, a few years later, discovered that when it comes to vitamin E, there are actually two different forms and they're very different in their biological effect on the body. So you were instrumental in this field in making these discoveries and and um, really advancing the knowledge of, of one of the isomers of vitamin E, to tocotrienol, which we'll be talking about today. So can you just tell us a little bit of your story and how you st stumbled across tocotrienols and got interested in, in their biological effects? Wow, well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And since you mentioned that uh, vitamin E um, in the last uh, 20 years have done more harm than good, for example, in some cancers and in women in many things. When you get a chance uh, to get a copy and download my book, I describe uh, all these uh, different things uh, that vitamin E uh, could be troublesome. That troublesome vitamin E is referring to alpha-tocopherol because alpha-tocopherol was first to be discovered and therefore it have a long history of usage. I'll just keep the story simple. The reason alpha-tocopherol have done damage is this. There are eight vitamin E's, four tocopherols and four tocotrienols, and they're all antioxidant because of the head. It has an OH group, the antioxidant. 
So the only distinction between the tocopherol acid group and the tocotrienol acid group are that the tocotrienols have three double bond in the tail and hence triene, that's it. So the tail is a little bit shorter and in simplistic term, the shorter tail allow it to intercalate, insert into the cell membrane and it can circle around going much faster to capture free radical and hence it's a more potent antioxidant Tocopherol can do that. So then why, that doesn't explain why tocopherol is toxic or, or, or potentially could be, it could take huge amount. Right. The reason is because in the alpha tocopherol, it has a transport protein, meaning that it has a chaperone to ensure it's entering into the body. And when people take 400 milligram, 1000 milligram, even 2000 milligram, huge amount go in is conserved and it's not coming out. The tocotrienol have no such luck. The body only takes whatever it needs, whatever it does not, then it's not gonna go in. So that would be the main reason of one compared to the other. So now the story. I went to South America about 25 years ago to look for lutein. I'm sure you have interviewed other people on lutein uh, for the macula. At the time, it was 1989-90. Uh, Very few people heard about lutein. I did because my entire uh, 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 studies when I was an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts here was on carotenoid. They are unconjugated double bonds. So I studied beta carotene, alpha carotene, the whole ball of wax, lycopene, azazentin, before people yeah, these are now terms that everybody has heard of. Every, back everybody in, knows. Back yeah. in 1989, they were unfam <laughs> unfamiliar, right? Yeah. So, so you were down in South America looking for a source of lutein? Is that, is that what yeah, you're Yeah, a source of lutein yeah. on this marigold. And then yeah. I did, but fate has it that literally 30 feet away from me, I saw this beautiful anato plant. They, it looked like this. See, you can yeah, see gorgeous. a young bee there like that. So I was in South America and, and, then, and then subsequently I've been to many countries. This is a very close up, almost like a picture perfect thing. Uh, this is, a, I, I took it from Costa Rica, beautiful on the, on the plant. I saw this plant. If you look carefully at this plant here, think of a fruit that you eat. You will always have a fleshy part. Where the fleshy part is in this fruit, the pot is the fruit. When I open the pot, the fleshy, the fleshy part is air. So you just see the seed and then the air. So it's a very unusual fruit in that it doesn't have a miso cup, not unlike papaya, apple, pear, oranges, everything else you have, it's just empty. And when you touch it, it stains your hand and the British nickname it the lipstick plant because it stains your hand. And instantly I knew that was a carotene. Now, this is long before today. I knew that among chemicals, the probably one of the most unstable organic chemical is carotene, not omega-3 by a long shot. And if you know omega-3 is unstable, this would be far more unstable. In life, when you see carotene, like beta-carotene in carrot, lycopene in tomato, you have to put it in a sauce and turn the heat up. I'm actually telling you something simple, but you got the gist. You, you have to cook it like this before you can see the oil turning color. That means that the carotene is well-preserved inside the cytoplasm, individual cell of each of those like that. That 
if you live in New England where I'm in Massachusetts, think lobster, think crustacean. They are usually greenish, yucky green, bluish color. The moment you cook them, it immediately become brilliantly orange or pink. That means that in the crustacean, they deprotonate and the carotene come up. They are well preserved. All this to say nature does it this way. This is the only exception to the rule. Because it's not bound to anything, it's staying in your hand. I thought it, it would just, I have many thoughts in life. Most of them come up in a cul-de-sac, it would dead end. This is one of those that did not dead end. I thought there must be a powerful antioxidant that preserved this carotene from degradation. Little did I know it was toco tri. You know, I was guessing it would be a, a, a phyto, a phyto a polyphenol, there's antioxidant. That's it. It was a pure stumbling in it, looking for carotene like lutein, and then I stumbled onto this approximately 22, 25 years ago. A very uh, <laughs> serendipitous accident, right? And then it, it yes. turned out, and we'll get into this more later, that you had stumbled on the, a pure source of, of delta and gamma tocotrienol, uh, whereas palm and rice and other sources of tocotrienols have a mixture of delta and gamma tocotrienol, alpha and beta tocotrienol, which are less potent, and then tocopherols, which can actually interfere with the actions of tocotrienols, which we'll come back to. So just sticking with the his historical view here, the tocopherols and vitamin E as a family were discovered in, I, I believe, the 1920s or something, you know, about yes. 100 years ago, right? Yes, yes. When, when was tocotrienol discovered? When was it discovered that tocopherol was not the only form of vitamin E? Yes, it's a, uh, actually you, you touch on something auspicious, if you can say it, it's exactly this year, 100 years ago, uh, alpha tocopherol was discovered by two pediatricians in UC Berkeley. So it's a very American affair. Uh, they extract that and see that without the alpha tocopherol, uh, the fetus is unable to get the full term. It is that, precisely that, makes alpha tocopherol and all the tocopherol and tocotrienol a vitamin. It is not because of its antioxidant property, it's that. Otherwise, it will never become a vitamin to, for whatever that is worth. So now, if you fast forward to 40 years, which answering your question, there was about the 1960s, uh, the USDA lab in the US and University of Liverpool, a professor there together, jointly discovered this very unusual, at the time they don't have chromatography, they're paper chromatography. They saw the spot like a shadow spot next to the main spot of alpha tocopherol. And at the time, if you look at old literature, now for normal tocopherol, you have alpha, beta, delta, gamma. Very simple, four Greek letters. But if you look at old literature, you will see nu, epsilon, zeta, and phi, phi uh, tocopherol. Those nu, epsilon, beta, and phi uh, uh, tocopherol, they were mislabeled. They were tocotrienol. Ah, they so just thought that they were tocopherol. And then, then later, up, and you know when they corrected that? almost in the year 2000, when they finally get to it to correct it, and then they become uh, properly called alpha, beta, delta, and gamma tocotrienol. Wow. So it looked like this tocotrienol is not meant to, it, it almost, a baby, almost not going to be birthed. Right, right. <laughs> 
So you're saying they were, in some way, they were discovered, you know, back in the 1960s, but they, at that time, were still believed to be part of the Tocopherol family, and they weren't mm -hmm. properly distinguished as a separate family called Tocotrienols, Alpha, Beta, Delta, and Gamma until just 20 years ago, basically. Yeah. A little over 20 Isn't years ago. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Yeah, it, it, it just and then and then the reason I got into that was 1982 was the year I was much younger than I am now, and I'm still living in the same place. I'm in Hadley, Massachusetts, two hours uh, uh, inland from Boston, at, and I was an assistant professor at University of Massachusetts. And it was there I started to study palm and rice and discover this. By that time, I already know about this toko trienol. I wasn't expecting it in palm, and then I discovered this in palm. So my timing of getting in, not by design, by default, much of my life is like this, you know, I happen to be in the right place studying palm oil, and then I happen to be in South America looking for something else, and something got distracted me to do this. Now, my life and career is arrested on this. There's so much on this toko trienol uh, that we have done study. A uh, uh, given chance, I can explain later what we have done clinical trial and animal study on this. It would be amazing uh, if our audience and listener would not seriously consider using this amazing phytonutrient uh, given to us by nature. Yes, I, I have, uh, as we were talking about uh, before we started the recording, I've been fascinated by tocotrienols and using them in my practice for many years and have been surprised that not many clinicians know about them and, and even fewer patients or individual yes. people know about them. So I am looking forward to diving into the, the benefits of tocotrienols and, and, and how they can actually help us optimize our health in this modern world that we're living in that unfortunately does have so many threats in terms of, you know, sources of inflammation and oxidative stress and all of the other challenges that we face. Uh, before we do that, I, I want to look a little bit like uh, tocotrienols were maybe a little disappointing at first for us in the research literature for a, what maybe was a surprising reason. You know, the early studies on tocotrienols you mentioned in your book were somewhat disappointing. Mm -hmm. Why was that? Yeah, I, I was involved in the early, I wasn't the only person involved in it. At the time, uh, there were abundance of tocotrienol that you can get from palm oil because palm oil was available. So the source of anato was no way to be seen. I stumbled onto this almost 20 years after. So it was only from palm oil. And coincidentally in palm oil, it contained 25% alpha tocopherol. And so when they gave it to animal to do studies, and then the animal, the cholesterol and the lipids would drop. And then when they did clinical studies sometime later, they noticed that in five study about two, and the third one is kind of like in between and two didn't and what in between. So it's 50-50, there's no statistical anything like that. So it was very disappointing. So then the University of Wisconsin professor and myself said, hey, we got to find out why, because we cannot just do a lot of clinical study when it's so equivocal. So they stopped clinical study. That means another 15 years have been wasted. This is a very painful time uh, for researchers. And they stopped. They published a seminal paper in 1997 that simply said this. They were guessing 
that the alpha tocopherol is not innocuous, which they earlier presumed. Remember, in nature, we thought if something is good, then a symmetry, a combination of that is good. Ordinarily, that is true. But right, especially in, is, plant, in, in plant medicine, that's usually true, right? Where you have yes, a yes, it's just true. compounds. Yeah. Yes. And now there, one had to ask, if the possibility of synergism exists, then any rational thinking person can, should also accept the possibility of antagonism may also be there. Usually it isn't, but in this case, as an exception, it is. But it, it is very painful step. So they remove all the alpha tocopherol, they use the delta and gamma, it works to lower cholesterol, lower lipid, this and that. And then they use the same amount of tocotrienol, they add in this amount of tocopherol, they notice a slight drop, not too significant. So they, they, in another study, they increase the tocopherol and then they see that the ability to lower cholesterol go down and eventually it increase more, same amount of tocotrienol and tocopherol and it completely inactivate the tocotrienol ability to lower cholesterol. So they came up with the conclusion that alpha tocopherol mitigates or interferes with the function of tocotrienol. And then so that to save this time and then so that you can ask other questions, now you fast forward 25 years later, we have systematically seen that if you add alpha tocopherol, not only inhibit the ability of tocotrienol to lower cholesterol and lipid, it also inhibit the tocotrienol ability to go after cancer, which is very important to me and and other chronic conditions hopefully i will explain later so yes. so now we clearly know this yeah that was an amazing discovery and so helpful in terms of advancing the field of research uh on the benefits of tocotrienols and i i just want to pause here to make this clear for the listeners why this is such an important discovery most multivitamins contain alpha tocopherol and most supplements that people would choose off of a shelf uh, contain alpha tocopherol. And so even if you were to take tocotrienols separately, if you're also simultaneously taking a high dose of supplemental tocopherols, you're basically going to be canceling out the potential benefits of those tocotrienols. In your book, you mentioned that this is true for supplements but not true for the amount of tocopherol that you would get from a healthy, normal diet. So what is the threshold and when do people need to be concerned about their tocopherol intake? Okay, so you're asking for two or three number question, which I'm happy to provide. And all this, it's just a pleasure to do this because I studied this and not surprised by the question. If you take a normal diet, with normal vegetable oil and meat, because in the fat, they may contain vitamin E, typically one would get about 10 to 15 milligram of alpha tocopherol at the most. And, and that may be combined with other gamma tocopherol, which have no strong vitamin E property, but let's say 10 to 15 milligram. At 10 to 15 milligram, and if you were to take 100 milligram of tocotrienol, so the tocopherol is about a, a 10 to 15% proportion, the interference will be minuscule, if any. The, the, and also, uh, you will find out that uh, uh, later on, sometimes people have to take about 300 milligram, then the composition of alpha tocopherol will be about 5% or less, then it would not matter. When it begins to matter is when it is about 20, 20% and above, like 20 or 30%, but then you say, when is that so? 
That would be so if somebody is taking 200 IU or 400 IU alpha tocopherol or 1000 IU, wow, then you're taking so much. And tocopherol is dirt cheap. So if you take so much, then it completely swamps the ability of tocotrienol for its function. Fantastic. So let's let's dive in now to the um, features of tocotrienols. I uh, perhaps starting with their cardiovascular protective benefits. That's how I first learned of them. I was uh, I had created a, a digital education program called the High Cholesterol Action Plan. I, I wanted I was in my clinical practice. You know, my practice was full. I wasn't able to see as many patients as I wanted to. And I knew so many people were struggling with high cholesterol and other mm. lipid abnormalities. So I wanted to create an educational program that kind of condensed a lot of what I had learned in my research and treating patients and give people, you know, tools that they could use safely on their own to improve their lipid profiles. And in my research, I had learned about the difference, important difference between LDL cholesterol and LDL particles, and that LDL particles, you know, according to many lipidologists, are really the driving force of, you know, behind heart disease, not so much cholesterol in the particle, but the particle itself. Mm -hmm. And the issue was there was a lot of research, a lot written on how to lower cholesterol, but there was there were very few substances, either pharmaceuticals or natural substances that had been shown to actually lower LDL particles. And I found some studies suggesting that delta and gamma tocotrienols could do this. And I started using them in my practice and had amazing results. I saw significant wow changes in LDL particle number. I saw ApoB come down. I even saw changes in lipoprotein little a, which is thought to be mostly genetic and not modifiable by diet. And then I saw, you know, uh, CRP, C-reactive protein come down. I saw oxidized LDL come down because of their effects, of course, as antioxidants. Uh, and I became a convert, you know, a tocotrienol <laughs> convert. So uh, tell us a little bit about the research on tocotrienols and, and, and lipids and other cardiovascular uh, risk factors. Wow. I, I think what you just talked about, LDL going down and the particle size, uh, uh, buoyancy people sometimes refer to them, mm -hmm. and the oxidized LDL, C-reactive ApoB, LP little a, and then uh, HDL, We've done many studies on it, but before I dive into that, I just want your audience to know that was a while back when we did that. Today, we have covered to the extent that we could to use tocotrienol on chronic conditions. So you, you can ask me later what are different chronic, but this was the first one we went after. The yeah. second one we went after, it was a big thing for me to bite, but I bit on it. And right now we're still working on it. And that chronic condition is not usually people think about, it's the big horrible C word, cancer. We have eight clinical trials in Denmark on cancer, excited about that. But all right, let's get back onto this. Yes, that. we will definitely talk about cancer. <laughs> to me, you know, that is one of the most exciting applic potential applications of tocotrienol is, is prevention and perhaps even treatment of of cancer and yeah. you know as we all know that's a growing you know, problem and and uh something that we desperately need new therapeutic tools for so yes let's come back to that and um yeah. you know maybe we could talk a little bit about the mechanism because i this is a fascinating thing about tocotrienols is they reduce the activity of hmg 
CoA, which is the same enzyme that's targeted by statin drugs, which everybody listening to this is, you know, is familiar with. So maybe we could start there. Yeah. Now, since you mentioned HMG-CoA, that is a pathway for making cholesterol. Uh, yes. And if you look at the, they have a pharmaceutical group. If you look carefully on the pharmaceutical group, it's not so dissimilar from some of the, uh, uh, the side chain of a statin drug, which is classically used for lowering cholesterol. Well, this is this. Uh, I know the audience is not looking at this visually. If I block away the OH group, that's a, that whole thing is a pharmaceutical group. So when you take tocotrienol, the tocotrienol with the pharmaceutical group, it downregulates the HMG reductase enzyme for telling the liver to make less of the reductase enzyme and therefore it's making less cholesterol. So it's a very gentle process and hence we have never seen uh, people complaining about muscle problem of any kind or CoQ10 drop of any kind that is a, a consequence of taking a statin drug. And if it, if this were to be a tocopherol, I know the owner can see that, where my finger is pointing, there's a double bond here, one, two, and the last one is where my pinky is, those three. If you remove the three double bond, then the tail would be a tocopherol. That is not a pharmaceutical anymore. That's a phytel. And a phytel is unable to down regulate the HMG reductase, only this pharmaceutical could. And then while I'm at this, I know I'm stealing a bit so that I can give you maximum time to ask other questions. This pharmaceutical tail, if you think of a cell membrane, cell wall, the membrane, the pharmaceutical tail of all natural ingredients that are antioxidant, a tocotrienol is perfectly able to snug into a membrane and it is there, it is an antioxidant. Otherwise, there are so many antioxidants, pick one, it's resveratrol, yeah. astaxanthin, very powerful and well-known. They are not going to compartmentalize here, why? If, if I have a structure in front of you, but you just have to trust me on this. Uh, resveratrol, for example, have four OH group, a four OH group, hydroxy group, and uh, astaxanthin have about uh, two or three. So it is a two-headed snake. So all the OH group is making it stick out. Nothing is able to stick into the lipid membrane. This molecule can, you see? The OH group here, it sticks out. This entire tail has to go into the membrane. So I have never seen in nature provided like this. And there was an Austrian professor in the 1980. He decided to answer this question so long ago. He decided that if I boil it down and extract all the antioxidant from a cell, what are those antioxidants coming up right on the very top? which means about 90% of it, they are tocopherol and tocotrienol. And the, the remaining 10 are CoQ10 and a smidgen amount of beta-carotene like this. No other mention of any other 
they're not there. They, they protect elsewhere, but not the cell. And the cell is what we need the most protection. Sorry, I know you didn't no, ask no. this question. That's I okay. Have to insert that in. <laughs> no, it's great. It, uh, eventually, I'd love to do video podcasts for this reason, so we can show uh, people and, instead of just telling them. But I, I just want to, um, you know, linger on a couple of things here because I think they're really, really important. The, the first is that uh, in your book you know, you refer to, to the action of tocotrienols and the HMG-CoA uh, enzyme that statins affect uh, as discriminant cholesterol reducers. So in other words, they, they do it in a way that is, you said, more gentle, but also more discriminant, whereas statins maybe have more, if we could use an analogy, or more of a sledgehammer in yes. terms of, you know, just slamming the HMG enzyme so that no new cholesterol, you know, very little cholesterol is produced. And that, of course, ha you know, has potential downsides. It, if you inhibit that whole en enzymatic pathway, you're not just reducing cholesterol, you're reducing CoQ10 and other important substances that come out of that pathway. Um, whereas with tocotrienols, not only do they have a more gentle impact on that enzyme, they don't seem to interfere with CoQ10 production. And that may explain why, and this has definitely been true in my experience as a clinician as well, there are really no side effects uh, mm -hmm. when taking tocotrienols compared to statins where people can experience, you know, in some cases, pretty serious myopathy, um, sexual dysfunction, and even you know severe disorders like rhabdomyolysis uh, in, in in some rare cases. So I just I think that's a really important you know function of tocotrienols to that I want I want to just make sure everybody understands. The other piece of this is it it looks like tocotrienols they don't just affect cholesterol they can also reduce uh, triglycerides which. Are, is a very important function when it comes to both cardiovascular and metabolic health. Do they do that? How, what's the, the mechanism for that? It's the impact on, on the liver, uh, but through a different pathway, I assume. Yeah, and the triglyceride pathway is less studied than the, uh, than the cholesterol. And uh, even though less studied, uh, it brought onto my understanding that it had greater clinical significance. We were studying people who have high cholesterol, otherwise not diabetic or pre-diabetic, but we kind of like consistently noticed that the triglyceride drop. <laughs> it, the mechanism is on tocopherol, the triglyceride drop, and the triglyceride synthesis is another pathway called SREBP, some other related thing, and then so, Anyway, I put it in the back of my head, noting that the triglyceride drop. As a lot of you know, I moved to Utah a couple of years ago, and it's a super dry state. I do a lot of mountain biking, hiking, and skiing, and when I do those activities in this drive of climate, it's crucial to avoid getting dehydrated, and that's where Element comes in. What a lot of people don't realize is that healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about replacing water and electrolytes, which makes sense because you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. Unfortunately, the typical solutions on the market, Gatorade, other sports drinks, and low-quality electrolyte packs 
are often loaded with sugar and a lot of artificial colors and flavors. This is why I've become a huge fan of Element. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte solution for people who want to stay hydrated but don't want to put a lot of junk in their bodies. It comes in super convenient individual packs that you just mix into your water bottle and you're good to go. No sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes and great taste. Element was formulated by my good friend and former research biochemist Rob Wolf to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium, and magnesium for health, performance, and energy. They also did a great job with the flavors. My favorites are orange salt and watermelon salt, but they have several other great flavors that are worth trying too. I've turned most of my friends and family onto Element and they love it, so I wanted to give you the chance to try it too. For a limited time, the folks at Element are offering a free Element sample pack, which comes with eight packets of Element, one of each flavor they sell. All you have to do is cover the cost of shipping, which is $5 for U.S. customers and location-dependent for international customers. Element has been an absolute game-changer for me and so many people I know. I put one in my water bottle virtually every day and never exercise or do anything active without it. I hope you get as much benefit from it as I do. Just go to drinkelement.com slash Cresser. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Cresser to claim your free element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. Again, that's drinkelement.com slash Cresser. D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash Cresser. And I have been a member of the American Diabetes Association now for some 30 years. And I've gone on to listen to people again and again to the different talk and mechanism that they have. Usually they look for some kind of clinical endpoint. And then I, I never forgot Professor Gerald Weaven. He was on his way about to retire, a medical doctor, endocrinologist from Stanford University. He was the one that noted in the early 70s, uh, mid 70s, late 80s that there is a cluster of uh, metabolic disorder. He didn't know what that, uh, he can define that the triglyceride went up before they become diabetic, the sugar go up like this. So because he couldn't understand how to, to bind them all together, he called it syndrome X, which later was defined and therefore is called metabolic syndrome. It was that gentleman who came up with it and, and right now, People, unless you're older, you would probably did not even know uh, there was called syndrome X before. And it was popular because of the X-Files and everything else that happened you know, in a movie <laughs> like that. So, so, so then he told me that before people have hyperglycemia, the triglyceride go up first. And I always got it in my head that hypertriglyceridemia precedes hyperglycemia. I never forgot it. So when somebody who is a diabetic, they always have high triglyceride, some, uh, besides high sugar. But somebody who is pre-diabetic, they have high triglyceride, albeit the sugar is not at the legal limit where they are diabetic. So because of that, the triglyceride issue, in the last 15 years, we have now done two studies, uh, no, two to three studies on diabetes and prediabetes, and then further three studies on people with fatty liver disease. And I'm proud to say, I'll give you the bottom line, I'll let you ask me specific question. In the diabetes and prediabetes, we consistently see 
that the management of the lipids is controlled and the sugar is under control. When we say sugar under control, we measure it a little bit more symptomatically uh, than more emotionally, so to speak. Emotionally means we'll look at the fasting sugar the next day, something like that. It's an important number. A1C would be what it maps about the sugar in the last 90 days. But we went further. We wanted to see how this is with the insulin. And the American Diabetes Association said that you should measure this with the insulin as well as the sugar together. They call it the HOMER IR. That is the hemostasis so that you can look at the insulin and sugar together. We, when we saw that the HOMER IR was able to drop, we know for sure that is controlling the sugar and also increasing the sensitivity of the insulin. Ladies and gentlemen, tocotrienol is able to increase the sensitivity of insulin. That is big. With that, then you can see that the controlling of the sugar is coming back. So it's from out of kilter to in kilter. So encouraged by that, we went all out. You know, I must, my company is a small company. We went all out to study three month study and then a six month study finished and published and worked. And now we're completing a 12 month study on people with confirmed non-alcohol fatty liver disease, which is another side of metabolic syndrome like that. We saw three things. The inflammation is in control. The uh, liver enzyme ASTALT is in control. The sugar, including the Homer IR, is in control. We even saw that uh, the extent of statosis, the fat in the liver, and fibrosis also in control. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a nutritional supplement. So I am so thrilled because approximately 25 to 30% of Americans have fatty liver. You would think about 30 years ago, such kind of cirrhotic liver would have come from alcohol drinking. Of course, that still won't go away, but who would have guessed by consuming high amount of fat, especially saturated fat, you can also have liver that looks cirrhotic like somebody damaged by alcohol. Yeah, and lots of uh, processed and refined carbohydrates play yes. a big role there uh, with a non-alcoholic fatty liver and those numbers continue to go up. Um, unfortunately, every year. So ha again, having a tool, um, a natural and safe tool to combat that is, is just remarkable. I, I know from your book and from research that I've read that the mechanism for many of those benefits is thought to be that tocotrienols activate uh, PPAR alpha, which is a protein that controls the genes that, it, that are involved with burning fatty acids for, for fuel. And this is a protein that's received a lot of attention in the research literature over the past, you know, 10, 20 years as metabolic syndrome rates have skyrocketed and gone through the roofs. And it's a, yes. it's a target of, of drug research and drug discovery. And here we have, yes, again, yes. A, a natural <laughs> compound, an essential vitamin um, or a family of, of vitamins that um, can activate this compound, which is just amazing. Yeah, thank, oh. thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, the P power, I sometimes forget about that. It increased the uh, oxidation of the fatty acid to convert energy. There's a P power. And then the other one is SREBP. It encourages uh, to, to control the synthesis of triglyceride. 
So one is the controlling the triglyceride synthesis, and the other one is, is converting the fatty acid to energy. So those are the two routes that I have. I have not dwelled as much into the mechanism for the triglyceride one as I did with the cholesterol one, because I was so stunned by the effect that is able to control the triglyceride. So I went on more on the clinical side. Yeah. And that's why I, I answered the way I did just now. I mean, my goodness, it's able to reduce scarring tissue of the liver and reducing fat storage in the liver. That is big news, you know? So I'm, I'm really glad. So shortly in the future, I'll be speaking more uh, on those uh, areas. Great. So I want to touch on a couple of other mechanisms, which I, I think are important because they underlie all chronic modern diseases. And those are inflammation and oxidative stress, mm -hmm. inclu including cancer. And so we can use this as a segue to talk about cancer and maybe briefly touch on bone health on the way there, because that's also a consequence of inflammation. Uh, so tocotrienols have uh, are, are, are powerful antioxidants, as you've mentioned several times. Um, I thought it was interesting in your book that you mentioned that alpha-tocopherol, which again is the form that many people uh, supplement with, mm -hmm. can actually increase the oxidation of LDL, uh, whereas tocotrienols are decreasing LDL oxidation and, and other forms of oxidative stress. What's going on there? <laughs> that study was done uh, by an oncologist uh, in, uh, in Chicago. Uh, as soon as I fumbled on that paper, like almost 15 years after it was published, I desperately was trying to contact this uh, lady professor. She had moved on and moved to San Francisco, and I'm unable to reach her. Her study was very simple. She was treating women with breast cancer, and she heard that many of them take antioxidant, especially alpha-tocopherol. She was able to get the institutional review board to do a study whereby they take tocopherol and then she is able to biopsy the tissue and then biopsy the tissue one month after so that she had the cell, cells to study this from the breast. These are already women with confirmed breast cancer. She was expecting to find that the alpha-tocopherol would provide strong antioxidative protection so that uh, either the cancer cell can be in control and reduce damage, whatever. She found the exact opposite. It was pretty alarming. She found that instead, uh, there were no protection, and she saw that certain biochemical marker is suggesting uh, that the cancer cell is proliferating and then when, when I saw the, can, the cancer marker was proliferating, I went to look at tocotrienol on those cancer markers on our studies we've done. And then I said, oh my goodness, the tocotrienol is supposed to go after those markers and nail it. And that's why the cancer went away in breast cancer. I've got many, many studies like this. So, but anyway, I was not able to contact her. Mm. I was able to dish out paper that showed that when people give tocotrienol and it worked, and then they add back to tocopherol, and when they add back to tocopherol systematically and progressively and dose dependently, it is inactivate the ability of the tocotrienol to kill the breast cancer. And after that, they've done it with colon cancer, prostate cancer, and many other cancer. All that to say, alpha tocopherol can mitigate 
But the one that this lady professor did was even more surprising. She did not put tocotrienol. She just gave them alpha tocopherol and the alpha tocopherol increased. Then I, wow, for that. And now unrelated to a study, the Harvard study shows that high intake of alpha tocopherol may even cause cancer. There it is. I'm just bearing it out. Yeah. If I say more, it will look like I'm trying to demonize alpha tocopherol. I believe when people take a normal, healthy diet, attaining about 10 to 15 milligrams of alpha tocopherol, that is good enough. If you supplement vitamin E, please supplement tocotrienol. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, science is a process of, of learning and you know, continually disproving our hypotheses and, um, you know, being willing to admit when, when we were wrong and, and uh, hopefully, you know, making better choices going forward. And so I, I don't hundred percent agree you know, with alpha to go for all that's, that's the story. And it's not just, that's been the story with many, many other things that seem promising initially, and then turned out to be, you know, not so promising. We, we also have a tendency in this country, especially to think if a little bit of something is good, then a lot of it must be better. And that's not always the case, right? As we, we've learned with alpha tocopherol. So I want to touch briefly on um, the anti-inflammatory properties of tocotrienols, yes. because those are pretty remarkable. And like I said, and everybody who listens to this show knows inflammation is at the root of all modern disease. So anything that's anti-inflammatory is going to, by definition, have a wide range of impacts across a wide range of inflammatory conditions. So uh, in your book, you just highlighted a few of the studies mentioning inhibition of uh, nuclear factor kappa beta and TNF alpha, C-reactive protein, uh, MDA and, and nitric oxide, which are you know, fairly specific to cardiovascular disease, but also players in, in many other inflammatory conditions. And that delta tocotrienol has specifically been shown to reduce inflammation and restore mobility in people with arthritis. And they've also been shown to increase total endogenous antioxidant status. So that, that's a pretty impressive spectrum of anti-inflammatory activities. Yes, that will be. Now, uh, on this, you mentioned uh, uh, some of them, NF-kappa B tumor necrosis factor, antioxidant status. We consistently see this in animal study and also in clinical study. But I like to talk about the inflammation this way. We, I, I got onto this inflammation thing because Paul Ritker, you should write this name down and look at him. He's the person that popularized and underwrite the understanding of C-reactive protein. Professor Paul Ritker, R-I-D-K-E-R, -E Harvard Medical School professor. He spent 20, 25 years to publish so many studies on C-reactive protein. When it's all said and done in your lipid panel, there's only one thing to look for you to measure your CRP. That is, it's, okay? that's amazing. Recently, and how did he come up with it? He said that half the people that have cardiovascular disease that turn really bad have high, potentially have high cholesterol and oxidized LDL, like you mentioned earlier. But the other half of people who have cardiac arrest and problems like these have high inflammation. So he set out the path to study what would be a reliable way to study inflammation. And this C-reactive protein, which is about uh, uh, 30,000, 40,000 size molecular weight protein 
that is under stress is being synthesized in the liver and ooze into the blood that you can easily measure. This inflammation protein also is produced if you have an infection. So when you have an infection, when you measure CRP, the number is not realistically meaningful. You want chronic inflammation for which the CRP would do. So he did that and we have consistently studied C-reactive protein in people with hypercholesterolemia, in people that have high triglycerides like prediabetes, in people who have diabetes uh, like that, and now in, in several studies in people with fatty liver, their C-reactive protein consistently dropped. So in other words, the drop of inflammation is important and we see them. It may not be the smoking gun itself. It could be the triglyceride drop and the C-reactive protein drug. So it could be hand in gloves thing. It's not independent of each other. However, I want to touch another point. I recently heard Professor Ritger gave a talk. Remember, this gentleman has given 30 years of his life doing C-reactive protein. And he said something, I noticed that it's a small shift in the tectonic plate. Then I thought you might make note of this and ask your other future interviewee. He said that there are times Besides C-reactive protein, there's another additional marker also underwrite inflammation that would be really hand in glove in the inflammatory thing. When he said that, I just stood up. He said that that marker should be interleukin-6. And he explained why it shouldn't be NF-kappa being tumor necrosis factor. Uh, none of all these things are good. But he said that the NF-kappa being tumor necrosis factor is further up. So that means that everything downstream dependent. So you don't know which is what, you know? So the C-reactive protein is further down and the interleukin is just slightly above. And then when he said that, I went back to go on all our study that we did interleukin-6 and they systematically dropped. And when we studied, we just tritely said that, you see, it also contained inflammation, but this is not what Professor Ritger said. He said that this interleukin-6 is important. So I must even a, must tell the audience here, sometime I do something, I haven't fully got the foggiest idea why I did that. I did that because I generally know it's information. And then somebody told me, I said, and then look, so, so there's no way I can contrive to make my number funny. I'm just doing it. I'm, I, I'm hoping that in science, if my name will end up in any place someday when I'm long gone, is that I give my best shot at it. And if it works, then I should let the world know. This is very it's very pleasing for me to find out I did this and somebody else say later that this interleukin-6 is hand in glove with C-reactive protein. So inflammation is important, hands down. Tocotrienol will reduce inflammation. Oh, that's great because I was gonna, that was one of my questions that I had written down because uh, we test interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein on every patient that comes into our clinic. And I did see changes in both of those markers with tocotrienol. So I was going to ask you if you'd actually studied that because I didn't see it in the in the ebook. Great. So let's talk about. By the way, the reason I did not put it in the ebook is because I did it, but I didn't know it was so important. Right. And everybody right. know about it. But right, now, now in my next thing, I will put it in there. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Let's let's. Do you have a few more minutes, Doctor yes, Tan? Yes, to talk yes. about? Okay, great. So I want to talk about cancer. This is you know all of the other benefits we've talked about so far are amazing in and of themselves. But as we talked about the the, the effects on, on cancer, perhaps the most exciting 
potential clinical applications of tocotrienols for, for so many reasons. So maybe we could start with just, again, mechanisms, and I understand these aren't all fully understood yet, but we, we talked a while, uh, earlier in the show about um, tocotrienol's ability to inhibit the HMG-CoA reductase enzyme. And that is, of course, the, you know, the, the pathway for cholesterol production in CoQ10, but it, it plays a unique role in cancer too, where, where cancer can hijack that enzyme to spread cholesterol through the tumor and make it worse. So you, there, it's been discovered that you know, tocotrienols affect that enzyme and, and that may be one of the mechanisms by which they impact cancer risk. Yes, there'll be. I, I would explain it. How about, I'll, I'll leave the two last one. I know it's going to be brief. I, there are many mechanisms uh, that would like cell signaling thing. There are so much of them mess of them. I almost don't want to accept them because they are very primary in the in the holy of holy where the nucleus is to make some kind of signaling thing. And you will see a whole lot of this published in Toko Tri. You know, the two that I hold strong pillar to. One you mentioned cholesterol. In the making of any cell, including cancer cell, they have cell wall. And cell wall contain the highest content of cholesterol in order to get the fluidity and the movement of the cell. And when you take tocotrienol, tocotrienol control the intracellular structure of the intracellular structure of the cell membrane by controlling the synthesis of the de novo cholesterol right there. So that's it. So because it controls that, and uh, several authors have published on this. So if you need it, I can send you those paper as review paper. Great. By the yeah. way, another, yeah, uh, uh, ahead, another time I can explain how that is also critically important uh, for the infection of COVID. You have to interview, take another interview. I mean, it is a very tantalizing uh, a topic on the COVID where the entrance of the virus is also through a uh, lipid raft that is lined with cholesterol. But that's another topic, another time. Okay. So that's one uh, a major mechanism. The other mechanism would be when the cancer is more than one millimeter in diameter. So you can you use the ruler, you can see one millimeter diameter, you know. So when you have that, a tiny tumor is formed. When the tiny tumor is formed, they have to have an organization to bring nutrient to it. They cannot just by osmosis, just suck nutrient from elsewhere. In order to do that, it's a plumbing job. They drill a hole in a nearby artery and make artificial artery and feed to itself. That process is angiogenesis. And genesis new, angio means, means artery to bring new artery into it. And one strategy to kill cancer is anti-angiogenesis. In other words, you create a system to chop off the feeding tube to feed the tumor. And if it is wired to grow like a dinosaur, it would also die like a dinosaur fast if it doesn't have the food. So therefore, the antocotrienol is one of the most potent anti-angiogenic agents. So the two mechanisms would be the stifling of the cholesterol that you mentioned, and the ability of the tocotrienol to perform anti-angiogenesis on the tumor itself. So those are the two major reasons to go after the cancer. That's fascinating. I, I know um, from my own research in your book too. They you know they have there are anti-clotting and anti-tumor effects. There are 
uh, tocotrienols can inhibit circulating cancer cells, which are responsible for recurrence and relapse of cancer. They have been shown to promote chemosensitization, which can make chemotherapy actually work better when, when patients need to have it. And there are specific studies showing benefits in, in recurring ovarian cancer and that uh, tocotrienols may inhibit signals that estrogen sends to bre breast cancer cells. So, you know, there could be a benefit there in estrogen positive uh, breast cancer. So, so many exciting things yeah. to explore in terms of the impact on cancer cells. Let, let's talk a little bit about um, how people can actually utilize tocotrienols. You know, one thing that uh, is, is important to make clear is that unfortunately, there are not really any sufficient dietary sources of delta and gamma tocotrienol. You know, unlike some other uh, compounds that we study for, for these kinds of benefits that you can find in significant amounts in food, delta and gamma tocotrienols it's not like we can just eat more apples or strawberries or something and, and get a therapeutic dose of, of mm -hmm. tocotrienol. Yeah. In terms of a protocol, I would say this, but to set the baseline in a typical American diet, I did a study one time to try to find out how much in a typical American diet, we probably may get up to, but no more than five milligram tocotrienol in a diet. And then uh, that's somewhat comparable, a little less uh, than tocopherol, which I mentioned about 10 to 15 milligram, unless yeah. someone eat a lot of palm oil, but we're not in the US drink a lot of palm oil. And then there's some thoughts that people may not want so much saturated, so much saturated fat from palm oil. If you, t in South America, you take a lot of anato, we discovered from the plant, then you might potentially can a able to get about 10 to 15 milligram tops. So five milligram or less is what we expect. I would say this on taking, if a person is healthy, you have no other condition of any kind whatsoever, no family history of this and that, probably 100 to 200 milligram tocotrienol as an antioxidant protection will be adequate. How did I come up with that? We, come, we came up with that when we study health, healthy elderly. We gave them 125 milligram and we measure the MDA, mevalonic acid, and then we measure the antioxidant uh, status and then the C-reactive protein. I don't remember one or two other things. And we noticed that they were good for people who are 60, 65 years old. So they otherwise not anything happened to them. Then a mild chronic condition from pre-diabetes to diabetes uh, like that, then or family history of uh, a breast cancer of other cancer or tend to be overweight or something like that or high triglyceride, then 200 to 400 milligram would do it based on a clinical study. It would be only on malignancy and uh, things like that, which we have shown uh, in study with people with pancreatic cancer and certainly ovarian cancer published. The other three not yet published are colon cancer, lung cancer, and breast cancer. I'm just holding my breath when that would be published in the next 12 to 24 months. And it will probably come back suggesting somewhere between 400 to 600 milligrams. Remember, they are that high because they are already malignant changes. It's a little mm -hmm. different. Yes, it is a chronic condition of sorts. So you have it, 100 to 200 milligram normal, 
for antioxidant protection, 200 to 400 for some of those milder conditions chronically. Usually, is a dysmetabolism uh, of your metabolites in your body, uh, metabolic syndrome, in other words, and then four to 600 milligram on malignancy type study. Fantastic. And uh, I know also at those higher doses, it's important to do a divided dose where you, you don't want to exceed uh, 300 milligrams per meal, uh, just because the absorption won't be as good as if yeah. you took it more in more than one dose. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I know that you fill in the blanks for me, which I wrote in the book, but sometimes I speak so fast, I forgot. That's okay. I, I well, think... I'm a clinician too. So I'm always thinking about, you know, how, how, how people actually do things and, you know, yeah, trying, thank trying you. Sure. <laughs> I, I would say that because toco trieno is a lipid, uh, just take it with a meal. A good one half of it will be absorbed just by taking advantage of the emulsification and your bile salt that add together and absorb it. Do not take tocotrienol that is previously emulsified, particularly with synthetic. I'll show you a picture of this. I don't usually show too much. Look at it. Look oh, at yeah. the anato wow. thing. The 300 yeah. milligram is small and somebody yeah. else's 200 milligram is huge. So yeah. it raises the question on, it's so huge because they put so many artificial synthetic. Right. If you put artificial synthetic thing, you are, if you put in detergent, you solubilize it, of course it's going to absorb. But I don't want to do that. I want to take advantage of my body with only one exception. If your audience have a malabsorption, because they have gallbladder taken off or they have otherwise a dysfunction of the fatty acid metabolism thing, then in that case, you may have to take it uh, with a teaspoon of MCT, yeah. a, a phospholipid like lecithin like that. I know you can do that, but, but otherwise for the normal audience, just take with simply with a meal that would be just fine. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to let everybody know who's listening. Um, you may have heard the announcement. I'm uh, launching my own supplement line called Adapt Naturals in July, and it's going to feature uh, a set of products that are designed to, you know, what I think pretty much everybody needs to promote optimal health and longevity. And you won't be surprised, Dr. Tan, to learn that tocotrienols are going to be a part of that. Uh, wow, thank you, thank you. So, um, you know, when I thought of nutrients like that, that, that just have, you know, incredible benefits across a wide spectrum of inflammatory conditions, um, and, and, you know, we haven't even had a chance to get into brain health and prevention of dementia and Alzheimer's and bone health and post, you know, menopausal women and, and uh, protection against radiation exposure and immune health <laughs> and all, all of the other things. We'll have, to, we'll have to do a part two. And to do that in a way, you know, with a substance that has really no known contraindications, that doesn't have side effects, that doesn't put you at higher risk for something else, you know, if you supplement with yeah. it over a, a long period of time. In my, you know, 15 years of doing this work, I don't, I haven't come across uh, many, many compounds that fit those criteria. And so yeah. I, I, I'm definitely going to be including this and, and we'll have more information about this um, supplement stack and, and how you can take advantage of tocotrienols in, in uh, the near future. So everybody stay tuned for, for more on that. And Dr. Tan, you are a wealth of knowledge. I, I want to Salute you and thank you for your pioneering work on tocotrienols. Uh, I think they're, I mean, I've already benefited 
as a clinician and, and I've been able to help so many people with everything from lipid abnormalities to metabolic issues to wow. other inflammatory conditions using tocotrienol. So I just want to personally thank you for your contribution in this area and would love to have you back for part two. I know we chatted about GG as a potential topic. And, and then when the studies on cancer that you mentioned um, are published, I would love to yeah. chat with you about the results of those as well. Thank you so much. If we were to do this in another year uh, or so, even on the toco trienol, I've forgotten to mention, we have a two-year-long study on uh, men and women with obesity, which wow. is carrying a lot of burden. And we gave them uh, a toco trienol. That study, we're finishing up a fatty liver disease study, 12 months long, that study. And then the third one, all the cancer study. So the toco trienol is worthy of a talk like that. The GG one is just dramatic. I don't, I don't want to add anything because we don't have the time here. The GG one clearly is for the synthesis of manoquinone 4, CoQ10, and muscle. Muscle for myopathy, for people who take statin, and muscle for the elderly who lost of muscle mass like sarcopenia. Those are big issues that GG can mitigate. So I'm so grateful you gave me this chance to talk. I love to come on your thing and able to provide the information. So it's a blessing to you and I, and also to the audience uh, that would hear this. So thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. And thank you all the listeners for, for listening. Uh, keep sending your questions into chriscrasser.com slash podcast question, and we'll talk to you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.